0: Deep, deep Dive, and a podcast, podcast of CGT Radio, go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations.
1: Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable.
0: Hello everybody welcome to roundtable coming to you from beijing i'm he young good to have you join us internationally the music festival scene has been around for a long time but it has exploded in popularity in recent years and you can feel it here in china too the influx of younger generations into the music industry and their desire to experience something different since covid made it popular during the just past Labor Day holiday. We take a look at the power of live music and what is pediatric and adolescent gynecology and why do we need it? For today's program, I'm joined by Lee Yi in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. First on today's show. One of the high notes for music lovers during the just past Labor Day holiday was going to music festivals in a whole host of cities in China. More than 40 music festival events have been held in Chinese cities, big and small. While many enjoyed the experience, the thrill of live music and gathering with swarms of like-minded people is irreplaceable, even in this hyper-connected age. But some fans are calling for better service quality, reasonable prices. And more. So, Li Yi, please give us a recap. How popular are music festivals these days in China?
2: Yeah, I think during the Labor Day holiday, you can definitely see a lot of young people, particularly, are enjoying their holiday by spending time at those music festivals. According to a report by Sixth Own, with over forty music festival events scheduled across nineteen provinces, we are seeing like a surging demand for live entertainment and also music festivals in China. According to data, hotel bookings near May Day, music festivals have surged 20-fold year-on-year, and also hotel bookings around the Beijing Park, where the Strawberry Music Fest was held have grown 18-fold from April 29th to May 1st, compared to that in the same period in 2019 basically before COVID and also in a report in April the China Association of Performing Arts predicted that large-scale performance activities will show explosive growth in 2023 and the number of concerts and music festivals will surpass those held in 2019 again before the whole of COVID so basically you can see more young people especially university students are going to music festivals during those holidays or weekends and they are using this opportunity to also have a short distance trip Mm. during those weekends and meantime for local regions i think they're also welcoming the trend because that definitely brings a lot of money to local economy yeah and young people are
0: going to these music festivals special force style or however you want to call it, but it's really popular. And from rock and jazz at the Midi Festival in Yantai in the eastern province of Shandong to indie pop and electronica at the Strawberry Music Festival in Beijing and Shanghai, these have become fixtures in the music festival scene, as well as now a lot of smaller cities are hosting these events too. And guess what? We have someone who have actually played at these music festivals. Festivals. Oh, hey, Josh, tell us what it's like to play in front of a huge audience at a music festival.
1: Um, that's quite a difficult question to answer. I guess it feels it's just a beautiful experience. I think that music festivals are quite special. I think they're quite different to playing regular shows. And I've been lucky enough to play some in China and i find the experience to be really quite warm and i think that's something that's quite special about music festivals is that generally the the people who go there or the diversity in the types of people that might be there is is much greater for example you have all age ranges from younger kids all the way to older adults and everything in between of course certain festivals are more popular with certain age groups and i think that still it's dominated by um, younger adults most of the time but still there's kind of because there's so many things going on it's a, also a bit more of a family environment which i I like different kind playing different kinds of shows but that's really lovely and it's really warm and usually the crowd is very engaged and they're quite happy and positive and it's easy to interact with them so yeah uh in in short it's lovely and I, I I wanna I could do it honestly every day if I got uh, if I had the opportunity to and the money was always there. but it's not really about the money or the opportunity it's more about the energy. It's also on the flip side it's very tiring. you have to move around a lot, travel a lot um and you only you're only on stage usually at a festival for a shorter amount of time than a usual show where maybe i might play for two hours usually at a festival it's 45 minutes to an hour maximum
0: yeah i checked out some uh videos featuring the band Axis neptune and i do encourage you to search and look it up and you'll be pleasantly surprised or I mean <laughs> if you don't know the band, you know. Thank so. you.
1: Thank you very much. It's Thank really you. good music oh.
0: and a lot of creativity and hard work that goes into it. So definitely worth a listen. And when we talk about music festivals, Woodstock Music Festival comes to mind is It was established in the late 1960s, was one of the first three-day music festivals that made its name in modern pop culture history, as half of a million people waited to what was known to be the Aquarian Experience. Three days of peace and music. Well, now fast forward to 60 years later? No, 50 years later. What is it about... Music festivals has gained it global popularity, and we're feeling it here in China too.
2: Well, I think you know different people have different understanding of music festival. Maybe for someone like Josh, who is professional artist, they may just see it as an opportunity to reach to a larger uh, range of audiences. But I think for regular people, I think we're basically enjoying music at those music festivals. And a special thing is that for maybe for those local operators of this music festivals, they are also welcoming such events all around the globe. And especially now in China, we're seeing more music festivals being held in smaller cities. I think majorly because, you know, it's not only about tickets. It's not only about music festival tickets. There are so many different sectors being involved for local regions. Um, The most important factor would be it can be a good opportunity to boost the local economy. Because when you're seeing like a flood of audiences coming to your city or your town to visit these music festivals, usually they are, of course, they are paying for tickets. But meantime, they're also spending money in like, accommodation they will just uh, make bookings in uh, at local hotels and also they can maybe i don't know spend money at gas stations because they can be driving to the venues and then of course they will just uh, have meals at the local restaurants so basically i think it's somehow like a little tourism sector that for local regions they can be gaining revenue by holding this kind of events and meantime i think they are also trying to build in connection between towns, cities, and also artists. For example, like Josh was invited to Dingzhou in Hebei province, right? I guess if there's a second chance, maybe he will also go to that city to attend other activities, I guess?
1: Well, I think that there's several reasons. There's We could go into the nitty gritty of it and we could talk about things like a growing middle class in China specifically and how a, a growing economy contributes to things like higher investment in entertainment more generally and i think that when people have more disposable income spending on entertainment increases um you're able to invite higher quality musicians for example and uh, people want to just invest in leisure activities more generally and music festivals is definitely one of those things we can always we can also talk about government support for these kind of things uh it, it seems as though over the last decade that Uh, Local governments in China have been actively promoting the development of things like music festivals um, As part of an effort to boost cultural and creative industries as a whole Um, And also a rising domestic music scene We've already spoken about this actually about China's booming film industry, right? We, We spoke about how certain Hollywood movies haven't been as successful As some of their predecessors, right, in China And one of the reasons for that being that China is releasing its own movies and it's the quality of its films are increasing the same definitely is going for its music industry in my opinion i think that it doesn't mean that is not to say that there hasn't been amazing chinese musicians in the past what i mean is though because i know her young you are a big fan of uh, a lot of um chinese musicians who've been popular for decades right but there is a rising domestic music scene in China, and I think in Asia generally as well. And I can tell you that because some of these musicians are also becoming popular in the West as well. This of course contributes to it. Another thing, one more final thing, because I have a lot to say about this obviously, but something that I've noticed, which I guess, I, I'm i 29 years old now, and I think that I could say that I've been a professional performing musician, to be honest, only for, maybe the last five years, something like that. And I think probably in the last three or two or three years, I've started to play things like music festivals on a slightly bigger scale. And something that's always been part and parcel of my experience as a musician, which wasn't always the case, was social media. And I think the importance of social media, especially in China, but all over the world, we really cannot ignore this. Social media has played a significant role in the increasing popularity of music festivals in China, in my opinion. And I I actually found some statistics to support this claim as well, because I think my experience is very subjective. Mm -hmm. But uh, I found a report by Tencent Music Entertainment Group, which we know is huge in China. Uh, Social media platforms like WeChat and Weibo um, have also become important channels for promoting music festivals in China. And this report found that over 80% of music festival attendees learned about the festival through social media. So according to these huge uh, platforms, over 80% of music festival attendees learned about it through social media. And I I don't think that's actually that surprising because even myself as a performer, almost everything I've found out about the music festival I'm going to perform at, even when I'm speaking to the organizers, has been through their social media channels. So hugely important. Um, Also, I'll give you one more um, in a survey conducted by Ctrip, which is one of China's leading online travel agencies, they found that 70% of respondents said that they would use social media to share their music festival experience with friends and followers. So there's some things I think are pretty important to this.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think it's going to be vital for artists to use this channel for promotion as well. And for a lot of Chinese people, basically, maybe... Well, definitely before you actually step foot into a music festival venue, or maybe you'll never do, but you'll probably catch snippets of it online with all these short video platforms. And also for those who attend these music festivals as a member of the audience, I doubt anybody would not share something online as well. And, you know, there's even a whole big fashion scene regarding this, like Coachella fashion or music festival fashion. You know, you basically dress up for the event. Where else can you put flowers in your hair, sport a boater, a caftan, a bikini, or anything in between and add a bit of glitter and no one bats an eyelid. And of course, you're going to share it online because that is basically what people do. And I think that's regardless of which country you live in and its a fact of life for today's young people. And personally, I just really love the sing along experience. And apparently, psychological studies show that when we sing in a large crowd, we experience a sense of euphoria called a collective effervescence and that comes from feeling socially connected through a shared experience. So basically, the 21st century cultural communion experience plus you're not just seeing one band or one artist. It's a whole lineup of a mix of variety of different artists you can see at a, a well at one day. So that sounds pretty amazing. But Apparently, some of these fans who've actually visited the music festivals aren't all that satisfied, and there are some common complaints. What are these? Indeed,
2: I think Josh has mentioned how powerful social media can be to promote m- these music festivals. But meantime, you also see a lot of festival goers are complaining about these m- music festivals. I mean, among all the things they're complaining, the biggest one would be ticket price. <sighs> Basically, they're complaining it's just uh, too expensive because I think in 2000, the first media music festival, I think that's uh, known for rock and roll bands, and that was held for free. But then you can definitely see like, ticket prices of these music festivals like, are surging all the time For example, the average ticket price for a single day performance was between 300 and 400 yuan And among the highest priced music festivals on the list, a music festival in Chengdu could just cost you over 1,300 yuan for one single day VIP tickets And then 1,800 yuan for two days so that's basically too high, especially mm. when you compare to people's expectation for music festivals, because usually you don't really expect you can spend that much for one single day music festival. Right. But yeah. now you're seeing like ticket prices are surging all the time. And meantime, you know, when people are paying much, like paying a lot for these music festivals they are observing that their experiences are not that good as expected it's somehow like you are about to attend like a camping but somehow you are paying for a huge sum of money so you expect that maybe I'm attending a glamping but somehow in the end you find that it's just a camping so (laughs) they are complaining that maybe poor traffic because a lot of music festivals are located in suburban areas in those cities so they don't really have enough um, very convenient traffic traffic transportation tools. And meantime, they're also complaining about they're seeing fewer bands or pretty much same bands every year on one single music festival.
0: Well, yeah, people are saying that they would like more variety as such. And I still remember years ago when Zhou Lin Cai, who is pop diva of a whole generation, possibly for the millennial generation. And when she attended one of these music festivals, there was this row between fans of mainstream mando pop and indie bands and saying, oh, you're a big star, but you're stealing all the limelight from our indie bands as such. But also, you know, these people can only be at one place at one time, and they can't really go to so many in a short span of time. So variety could be an issue. And also, when you're paying that much, your expectation goes up as well, and... Josh, what do you see as the issues that the music festivals here in China have experienced, kind of like growing pains?
1: Yeah, there are some growing pains and I think that music festivals, however established they might be, some of the biggest in the world, I'm familiar with a lot of them in the UK, they continue to have quite a lot of stigma around them and they are certainly not perfect. Um, One of the big issues as you guys have sort of touched on, is the actual location, the surrounding community. These things go on for a very very long time, I mean relatively so, it's basically like a week-long party, because or even if the festival's on for three or even two days, or even a day, there's weeks of preparation and the surrounding community can often feel that. One example is Glastonbury Festival, which is one of the biggest festivals in the world in the UK. Um, It is based in the UK, but one of the biggest festivals in the world, full stop period. And it is close to several villages and farms. And these communities, when this festival happens, are overloaded with visitors. And I mean, it goes from being a small village area or villages, plural, to having hundreds of thousands of people coming in and not just hundreds of thousands of people hundreds and thousands of party goers people (laughs) who are loud dirty smelly Mm -hmm. often intoxicated coming to party I've been one of those people several times and um this of course comes with obvious problems and it comes with a lot of negotiation often I think surrounding villages they get free tickets or even more compensation sometimes, I think sometimes they even get some money. It's quite complex. And of course, there are some people who don't want the tickets. They don't need the money, right? So what do you do about those folks? That's one issue. Another one is safety at these festivals. The bigger it gets, people are having a good time. You have to ensure that people are safe. This can be quite difficult. Especially when you're trying to instill, which most festivals do, a sense of community Mm. and safety. And they don't, often a lot of these festivals, they don't really vibe with this idea of having heavy security. They rather like to go with volunteers and going with things like food sharing even in some areas and having people involved in the festival themselves. I, for example, worked at Glastonbury Festival. I was helping recycling. I got a free ticket for doing this and things like this. So how do you gel that smoothly with security? It's actually quite difficult. So yeah. these are some of the biggest issues I would say facing festivals, and they will, they're will they not really growing pains. They're just issues that are gonna be there for forever really, I think.
0: Yeah, and they need some solutions, and this is happening every year, right? So it's not like we know it's going away anywhere. But this actually reminds me of, I don't mean to make comparisons here, but it's just an interesting sort of note to take. A couple of my best friends went to the Fuji Music Festival a few years ago in Japan, and Yeah, of course, you've got an international lineup, and, you know, these are people who are into rock and roll. And I would say like to party, too, in Japan. And then once the thing is over, what was astounding was that there was no garbage left behind. And then I think that's something to be learned by people. If you go to other people's place... Or space, or just a pet, a public venue, and, and sure you're there to have a good time, but try not to throw stuff around, leave stuff around, any of that stuff, because don't leave a trace when, especially the unwanted type. So, what's new this year is that, of course, we're increasingly putting COVID in the rear-view window, which is awesome, and people have this pent-up demand that they want to go to places, they want to travel, they want to listen to live music and experience the atmosphere. And these music festivals are going to noticeably a lot of these smaller cities. What do you think is attracting the smaller cities to host the events and also getting people to go? Well, I think, you know, I was told
2: by one of my friends who is like a super music fan, also a fan of live shows, that the reason, the major reason would be there are simply too many shows being held in China right now. So you can see that those big cities like Beijing and Shanghai are basically have a very tight schedule among those venues. So for those um, music festival operators they have to like move their events to smaller cities but however i think there are some other reasons for example for consumers ticket price at those music festivals at smaller cities can be cheaper so that can be A major i think driving force to attract more people to visit that place and meantime for a lot of young people they're also taking that chance to have a trip during that music festival experience because they can also pay for some cheap traffic and a cheap accommodation which can also be a smart choice and also i think smaller cities they also have more venues like vacant venues compared to bigger cities and for bands or for operators or music festival organizers they can also enjoy like lower cost by hosting such festivals in smaller cities maybe like stage calls and flexible dates compared to bigger cities so these can also be different reasons that attract music festivals to come to smaller
0: cities. Yeah, and we've mentioned some of these problems that they're experiencing. Josh, in 30 seconds, can you provide us some solutions or possible ways to improve the situation?
1: I think that there needs to be a real focus on health and safety. I think that festivals need to be very inclusive. I think that they need to be we need to welcome all members of society all age groups and that's what a festival really is i think that um that there needs to be investment in the local community and respect for the local community i think that hygiene and cleanliness litter picking all of these things that seem kind of boring and nothing to do with the music are actually super, super important, in my opinion, because they all foster a clean, safe, and healthy environment that ultimately allows people to feel safe and be happy and enjoy the music.
0: Awesome. As music festivals continue to grow, so does the need for a memorable, tangible moment, even in this digital age, just as one of Jimi Hendrix's most famous quotes asks you. Are you experienced? We'll be back with more Roundtable Discussion. The mother put the porcelain spoon. The mother drew
2: back and poured the little girl back. But the mother did not hear the old voice. The mother.
0: Experience the heartwarming story of a mother's love that knows no bounds, titled The Mother, written by Nobel Prize-winning author Pearl S. Buck. It's a story of love, sacrifice, and the universalism of motherhood that transcends race and borders, told through an account of an unnamed mother living in rural China in the early 20th century. Get the audiobook right now at radio.cgtn.com or any major podcast platform. Simply search for the Books and Beyond podcast and key in the mother.
1: Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable.
0: You're listening to Roundtable with myself, Hu Young. I'm joined by Li Yi in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. Coming up, pediatric and adolescent gynecology, or PAG, requires highly specialized training in medicine. We discuss how girls and adolescent young women benefit from early gynecologic care and the culinary art of a quick fix. Busy urban dwellers have their dinner figured out. Fast and fastidious? What you mean, huh, y'all? Gotta listen to the show to find out. Our podcast listeners can find us at Roundtable China on Apple Podcasts. Keep sending us your comments, thoughts, and questions to ezfmroundtable at foxmail.com. Your voice could be featured in the show in our heart-to-heart segment. Now on Roundtable. Pediatric and adolescent gynecology, or PAG, is a relatively new subspecialty within the field of obstetrics and gynecology. Worldwide, this area of medicine has developed for nearly 80 years. In China, it's still very new, with only 20 hospitals across the country providing clinical care. PAG is a branch of medicine that focuses on the reproductive care of infants, children, and adolescents who are females, and they have specialized needs compared to adult women. So, Li Yi, This is a hefty job you're taking on. Mm -hmm. What is pediatric and adolescent gynecology care, and what areas in medicine does it focus on? Yeah, so basically this pediatric and adolescent
2: gynecology, or PAG, is a subspecialty of gynecology. And doctors in this area would just provide health care to infants, children, and also teen girls. So basically in the world, PAG would focus on gynecologic issues of patients from 0 to 18 years old. But as far as I know, at some hospitals, the PAG care can also be offered to anyone aged under 24. So age limits really depend on regional standards. Mm. So in general, you know, PAG is for young people with disorders of the female reproductive system. That means the internal and external organs that are responsible for fertility, menstruation and sexual activity. And children and teenagers may need PAG treatment for a wide range of reasons. I think having abnormal issues can be one common reason and usually they can be rare diseases. For example, the baby is born with reproductive abnormalities or they have ovarian cysts that are inherited, so they might need to be monitored closely and frequently by doctors. However, I think not all reasons for visiting uh, children's gynecologists are as serious as the reasons we've mentioned above for example they can also be providing preventive care which is kind of important especially if there's a family history of certain cancer or other genetic diseases connected in this area and also you can also visit a children's gynecologist when you are having menstruation problems like early or delayed periods or Um, your kid has been bleeding for more than two weeks or their period is irregular or painful and also sexual activity can also be a reason that uh, children and teen girls visit gynecologists if the child is sexually active and missed a period sometimes it is a good idea to visit a professional doctor in this area Um, So basically, these are some different circumstances. And also there are um, some services provided by PAG departments. For example, they can promote HPV vaccinations, which kind of important for young girls. And also there is pregnancy related problems. And also you have breast problems. You can also visit a children's gynecologist.
0: Yeah, and all the things that you just mentioned for us, I believe... Are sometimes things that parents don't really want to think about, and also when you're a very young person, like a girl or a teen or preteen, and if these issues come up, and you might not know where to look for help and don't know where to get the um, where to get the correct information, and guess what people do? They go to the internet, and mm-hmm. often. Don't really get correct information there either. Josh, let's look at some of the reasons why that girls under the 18 do need these specialized PAG doctors instead of, if I may say, regular doctors.
1: I guess the, the same reason that anybody would need to see a specialist. Medicine, the field of medicine is extremely vast and as well trained and as much experience as A General practitioner might have and as any doctor might have These areas of medicine also can be very unique and of course It's always better to go and see a specialist if the situation is serious or if you have the opportunity to see them Anyway, it's it's always better to see a specialist whether it's serious or not, right? And I guess what we're really talking about here is I think we can agree on that about any area of medicine not just pediatric gynecology or uh, it can be anything, right? That it's better to go and see a specialist. I think the issue here, of course, which we're talking about is that there's a lack of professionals and specialists in this specific field. So um, uh, this this is something that I'd like to say about that.
0: Yes. Also, if I may make the question a little bit more specific, basically what we see here in China is that for a long time, there has been a lack of understanding of PHE care in China, period. Most hospitals don't even have this department. And so, in practice, if a child or girl needs reproductive care, they would either go see pediatrics if they're under the age of 14 or gynecology if they're above the age of 14. This is what has been going on. And why is this an issue? Why is it a problem? The thing is that in reality, you may
2: find some children's doctors, let's put it in a simple way, they may like professional knowledge about gynecology. And they may suggest a girl to visit a professional gynecologist for adult women when in need however i think in china somehow maybe for girls and also for their parents they might just feel embarrassed or simply shy to visit a professional gynecologist uh, for adult women especially you don't really have a separate department or clinic or a separate examination room for girls and younger women so that can be a problem and also i think this pag or children's uh, gynecologists, they provide a very important function that is they are also offering emotional support for those younger women patients because I think OBGYN anxiety or embarrassment is kind of common among women especially young women you know that means uh, girls teens can feel embarrassed or nervous or simply shy when they're visiting a gynecologist especially when it comes to they have to do certain due end examinations they may feel like uncomfortable and they may feel embarrassed and that can just lead to them avoid seeing a professional gynecologist and that happens because this is according to a 2018 survey by a charity organization in the UK you know over 70% of girls and young women have experienced symptoms linked to their period that concerned them but they haven't really seen a doctor or health professional and the main reason would be they hadn't really seen a doctor or health professional about their concerns because they had felt too embarrassed with nearly one in 10 saying there was only a male doctor available so they didn't really feel comfortable talking to them so that can be a problem because especially for girls they don't really have adequate knowledge about their body about their symptoms especially when it comes to sex education so if they don't really feel comfortable in that environment that can lead to potential risks when they're avoiding seeing doctors so anxiety and embarrassment are common and meantime I think when you're looking at those news reports when you're exploring why young female are, are less willing to see gynecologists, one thing would be they have the fear of being judged, especially mm. for young girls, because I have a friend, you know, uh, she told me that she suffered from certain gynecological inflammation when she was like 12 or 13. And her mother just took her to a professional gynecologist for adult women, of course, at that time we wouldn't really have like PAG department at that time. And, you know, while her mother was accompanying her in the clinic, the doctor didn't really say anything about like her symptoms, about why she's having this issue. And the doctor just asked her mother to maybe pay the bills and asked my friend just to, to stay in the room. And when she, her mom left, that doctor asked my friend, did you have sex or what did you do? You know. And my friend just said, I did nothing. Of course, I didn't really have sex. I just simply feel don't really that comfortable. So that's why I'm visiting you and looking for some professional treatment. So the whole experience was kind of embarrassing and kind of irritating because my friend feel like embarrassed and feel even assaulted by that doctor you know I believe that the doctor wasn't really intentionally hurting my friend but simply maybe because that doctor has been like seeing or giving diagnose to adult women so she didn't really have enough knowledge about certain symptoms of little girls so that's why she was asking that question and also she didn't really receive certain professional training about how to handle these issues when you are seeing a younger patient. So that's why she was asking that question in a improper way. So yeah. now you see why we're having or we are promoting PAG department in China. Yeah.
0: Well, actually, a few thoughts emerged just from what you shared of uh, a friend's anecdote. One of the things I think that the doctor did right was wait until the mom is out of the Mm -hmm. room to ask these questions because when it's kind of like sensitive matter like this and sometimes, you know, there is still the stigma and kids or young people, they don't feel like they can unload the truth if their parents are in the room so i understand that and also i think the doctor was asking a legitimate question but it's like how do you do it and for pediatric and adolescent gynecologists they are supposed to have special training and experience in talking to young patients at various stages of adolescence but in reality I mean, with a lot of these, I call them soft matters, um, in China, we are kind of lacking of such. And consider the number of patients that doctors see in a public hospital, rarely do people get up to snuff bedside manners. And I think with all ailments, ideally, but also with things like this, it would be great to get a to receive a little bit more care and sensitivity like that. You know, I
2: know maybe that doctor like was trying to protect my friend privacy, maybe I was missing a very important point. Because when my friend's mother like came back, and the doctor didn't really give a very specific or clear diagnosis she basically just said that I didn't really know why such a young girl have this kind of symptoms and maybe there can be different reasons but we don't really know so simply here's the medicine and just take it and mm-hmm. see if they can work so you know that can be um that can be quite embarrassing and yeah, maybe because that doctor simply doesn't really know what's really going on so Uh, That's why you're seeing like a lot of doctors, especially in this area, they are promoting PAG in China. They're also calling for more well-established education in China because we need more professional talents. But meantime, we also need more professional training courses provided to those doctors who might be like learning in the sector while they are doing their job. But meantime, we are also hope that we can offer this kind of training before they get their job done in those clinics. Yes.
0: And Josh, so we're talking about kids, teens and tweens of the female gender and medical care that is specific for their reproductive care. What about for boys? I would think that there are needs in that department too for the fellow male peers. Um, do you have any information on how that is being handled?
1: Yeah, well, the equivalent of the male equivalent of gynecology, I guess, is something called urology and the gynecologist would be a urologist. So um, this is again, while gynecology will focus on the female reproductive system, urology focuses on the male reproductive system and the urinary system. and they're trained to diagnose some issues completely different obviously and some issues quite similar um and in in the uk actually there is not a there's not an availability there's a lack of urologists there's also a lack of gynecologists never mind pediatric gynecologists and pediatric urologists but urologists and gynecologists in general um there's there's not there's a, a lot of concerns about the shortage of them in the United Kingdom, much like in China. Actually, I found that according to a report by the Royal College of Surgeons of England, there's a shortage of urologists in the UK, with many areas having fewer than one urologist per 100,000 people in a population. Never mind pediatric urologists, right? So there's really a, a huge shortage here, and I um, that's really uh the the issue there and and a lot of the reasons for the lack of urologists are similar to the reasons for the lack of gynecologists as well there's actually one issue that surrounds this which we haven't mentioned here which is a particular issue in the us which is um, malpractice insurance something called malpractice insurance in countries like the united states and also private practices especially in the uk as well Gynecologists and urologists are required to pay really high malpractice insurance premiums due to the risk of lawsuits, um, especially related to things like childbirth, uh, etc., with gynecological procedures, and this can make it really difficult. Um, and so, this is one issue that I wanted to mention. But I, I think in China, maybe this isn't really the case. Uh, I don't think that this is one of the predominant issues, um, and in other countries. There's just a general stigma around these issues as well, um, which can really discourage medical students from taking up the practice.
2: Yeah, I think in China, we're pretty much facing the similar problem here. First of all, we don't really have enough specific PAG or uh, children's gynecology service here in China. I mean, now we only have about 20 major hospitals offering that clinic. And meantime, you can see not. All of them are offering like all day service, being open to patients and majorly because they don't really have enough professional PhD doctors and most of those doctors are like seeing patients at the clinics, they are basically doing part-time job because they don't don't really study specifically in this area. So they can be like regular gynecologists for adult women. So that's why we don't really see a lot of service being provided to young women in China. And meantime, as I mentioned before, we don't really have a specific education system for cultivating more professional Ph uh, doctors so that's why you're seeing a lot of uh, advocates of this phd sector they're calling for more textbooks more courses being provided to medical students and uh, and also i think for treatment and the diagnosis we also don't really see a very comprehensive guideline for that procedure during the practical uh, treatment processes because a lot of times in those Ph clinics, those doctors can only rely on those guidelines for adult women when they are treating certain young women or girls. And that can that can be okay. But of course, if we have a specific guideline, that would be better. So these are all some questions and problems remain to be solved.
0: One might say that isn't this super niche? And maybe you're right to some extent. But the ability and the want to see these specific needs, I think, is important as a society becomes more developed and maybe more civilized at the same time. So we're turning our attention to PAG. Pediatric and adolescent gynecology. And we need more medical professionals and physicians with expertise and experience in dealing with the particular ailments of girls and adolescent young women to care for this underserved population. You're listening to Roundtable. Coming up next, young urban dwellers get their hands dirty in taking up the culinary art of a quick fix for dinner. Stay tuned.
1: Looking for passion? How about fiery debate? Want to hear about
0: current events in China from different perspectives? Then tune in to Roundtable, where East meets West and understanding is the goal. It's the hour of Roundtable with myself, He Young. I'm joined by Lee Yi in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. Cooking a grand dinner after a long day at work is simply out of the question for a lot of young people or urban dwellers. You opt for something more realistic, a quick fix. Probably that's why a cooking style of as simple as possible steps is picking up steam among young people. So what is this cooking art or style really about?
2: Well, in Chinese, people are calling it basically meaning quick fix recipes and that is getting really popular on social media platform red and also video platform bilibili whose major users are both young people you know on red under the topic zuofan xue there are over 20000 posts i think the ultimate essence of this doctrine would be saving your time and troubles when cooking so they can be there can be various tactics you know for example like use scissors to cut food instead of knives during preparation so that you don't really need a chopping board this way and that can save you the trouble of washing it later and plus once you cut those vegetables with scissors you can simply throw the large chunks into the wok and making the cooking process even faster. And also people are saying that you can save lunch leftovers for dinner. So for example, turn leftover rice into fried rice or save any leftover ingredients for later meals. And when you don't know what to do about leftover vegetables or meat, you can always make luandun, basically meaning stew. Yeah. So these are some, yeah, some lessons are being taught on those platforms, basically for saving time for young people who are looking for a cooked meal at home, yet they don't really want to settle down with takeaway
0: food. Right. Um, just to clarify, though, um, people have been tagging fast and fastidious to this kind of cooking style. So, you know, the, the latter of that adjective is basically saying that they're not just making do. So that's the part I find to be a little bit self-contradictory. So if this is a quick fix, but also, you know, you've got the necessary stuff all taken care of there's also that as well is it well i think it's
2: basically because people also care about nutrition they Ah. also want to have like a healthy and balanced meal they want like meat protein vegetable and main dish in this one single meal however they don't really want to spend that much of money in cooking this meal so that's why they're you know turning to this like
0: quote-unquote quick fix all right josh Is this something that you pick up?
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I I think that there's a lot of value to this and it makes a lot of sense to me. I think maybe immediately it can seem slightly strange because if you're so busy, why would you make the effort to cook, right? But there's a a ton of evidence that supports um, cooking or supports the idea that cooking is beneficial to you and can actually help with quite a busy, stressful lifestyle. So it makes sense to me. And after reading this, it really made me feel guilty for the how little, guilty about how little I actually cook myself. And I I think many of us know the benefits of cooking, but maybe what we're talking about really here is how cooking can reduce stress, I think. Because I think for many people, cooking immediately seems like it could be quite a stressful activity. But there's so much evidence to suggest that it's good for you. I actually read something that was published in the Journal of Positive Psychology, which, surprise, surprise, is about how to reduce stress. And they found that engaging in small creative activities like cooking can lead to increased feelings of well-being and decreased stress levels. Moreover, apparently, it can boost self-esteem. There was a survey conducted by the Royal Society for Public Health in the United Kingdom, my own country, that found that people who cook from scratch, that means make a quick meal from scratch, can have a higher level of self-esteem and confidence, not just in the kitchen, but in everyday life. So I have many more of these, which probably aren't too surprising. So given all of this evidence, it doesn't surprise me that much that people are doing this, especially when they're young, coupled with social media, taking pictures of the food they cooked, whether they're going to eat it or not, and um, getting lots of followers. Win-win.
0: Yeah, well, you're painting the career path of a uh, culinary KOL and... Yeah, and there are so many of these videos online that are beautifully lit and shot and produced. When you go into your kitchen and start doing the same, chances are it's nothing the same like what's shown in the videos. Uh, Coming from somebody who almost accidentally burnt her kitchen down. So basically... Li, what do you see as the reasons that um, this has become something that Chinese Gen Z are talking about online? Well, I think as Josh has mentioned before, we simply
2: don't really have that so much time right now. You know, everyone is busy. And uh, we definitely don't want to spend a huge amount of money cooking. And uh, also, I think young people, they aren't really particularly confident in their kitchen abilities when compared to other generations so maybe for them the easier the recipe is the better for them and they are much more likely to take up those recipes and also me myself you know I actually am a fan of home cooking food and I also like uh, to cook and also bring lunch box every day so when you have to cook every day you will know that cooking is sort of a project you need sort of SOP to prioritize the whole process so that you can save your time and the meantime cook a well-balanced meal so it's all about like time management and how you prioritize different tasks and maybe you can multitasking and maybe you can use some good tools to help you save time so I can really relate to those videos uh, who are teaching sort of quick fix recipes to young people
0: yeah I just want to know who's going to clean up after I've made the mess because <laughs> both are equally as daunting major missions for, for people. And also if you're living alone and cooking the one-person meal, it's really difficult to sort of manage the portion and all that work that goes into it, despite all the benefits that Josh has spoken to us. Um, let us know what you think. You can always reach us via email, ezfmroundtable at foxmail.com. And if you feel like it, please send us an audio clip. And that's always preferred. Thank you so much, Lee Yi and Josh Cottero for joining the discussion. I'm He Young. We'll see you next time.